Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. We're going to continue our series this morning on Bring Out the Book. And I've entitled today's talk, The Greatest Story Ever Told, which I'm sure means that you already guessed we're going to talk about the Gospels. We're going to tell the story of how God, the creator of the universe, the upholder of everything, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, came and lived on this planet for 33 years as a human being. And I want us at the end of this to understand at a deeper level the story, the context of the story, where it happened, the places, the people. And I'm praying that we'll end up with a greater love and understanding for the Gospels and through that greater love and understanding for our Lord Jesus. So we're going to look at three things. I want to talk first about the four Gospels and why they differ and then to talk about the place of which Jesus's ministry took place, Palestine. And then we're going to look at those three years and the flow and what happened and the different stages in them and focus perhaps on a couple of snapshots within that time. So first of all, the Gospels, four Gospels. Well, you probably have already had people commenting that surely there are more Gospels and did not the church just choose the ones that suited themselves? Or what about all the contradictions between the Gospels? So let's just look at those two things first of all. How many Gospels are there? Well, depending how you count them, and and Dan Brown seems to count probably even more than anybody else, um, there's probably eight or nine writings around in terms of the in time of the early church that could be talked about as gospels but all but one of them was significantly later at least a hundred years later than the four we're looking at today which means there were no eyewitnesses around to remember and we can't really trust them and actually if you read them they're really rather like fairy stories there is one that potentially could have been at a similar time Um, It's not certain, it's quite likely to be later, but you could argue that the Gospel of Thomas was written quite closer to the others. The Gospel of Thomas is quite different. It's a series of conversations between Jesus and Thomas the Apostle, the one we call Doubting Thomas. Uh, It's a strange mixture. And my first question, if anyone says to me about the other Gospels, is I would say, well, have you read them? And um, if you read the Gospel of Thomas, you'll see that it quotes lots of bits from the other Gospels, but some weird bits as well. Um, And just to pick on one, it ends with Jesus talking about how women get into the kingdom of heaven. And he he says that he will change them into into men. And every woman who becomes male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's not only hugely offensive, but it's also completely out of kilter with everything Jesus said and did about women and the whole gospel's like that so I think it's fairly easy to say no these are the only four eyewitness accounts that have any credibility but what about the differences so when Jesus went across the other side of the Sea of Galilee and delivered um, the man of of the um, the demons into the pigs was it one man as we read about in Mark 6 was it two men as we read about in Mark 8 I don't think it matters. And as Micah Cox uh, would tell us as a policeman, if you ever go to uh, an incident and you interview all the eyewitnesses and they say exactly the same thing, you could be sure it's a completely put up job. 
because everybody sees things slightly differently. So for me, those differences actually add credibility to these are genuine eyewitness accounts. And the, the gospel writers move things around because they want to make points, they structure things. There's a lot more thought going into these gospels than we probably actually credit or realize. They come with different viewpoints, different perspectives. And if we understand that, it will help us when we read them. So Mark is the earliest. It's also the most active. It's all about action and discipleship. Uh, I'm just going to quote from N.T. Wright's book, The New Testament and Its World, which I've used as background for a lot of this. So he says, Mark is a densely packed, fast-paced, action-filled story about Jesus of Nazareth. It, it can leave the readers a bit bewildered, breathless, shaken and challenged. It confronts anyone who doesn't know Jesus with the reality of who he is and his life. And it challenges believers who are committed only as far as our convenience allows to embrace the way of discipleship and of self-giving love. It is an active, exciting story. Matthew, a bit different, roots the story right back into God's redemptive action, how he first chose a person in Abraham, then a people, and he echoes all the way back and gives a depth to the story and how it links into the Old Testament. Perhaps not surprisingly, Matthew was the most quoted, most copied, most read Christian book for the first 300 years of the early church because it linked them back into that story. There are five major sets of sayings in Matthew. We know of one as the Sermon of the Mount, but he structures it into five. And they're like a manifesto for the church. They outline our calling, our mission, our way of life, and our hope. And above all, Matthew's a teaching book about how to be a follower of Jesus. Luke is different again. Luke as a doctor and his two volume book, because we should see it like that, Luke and Acts are like two volumes of one book, have a much more historical detailed feel. If you want to earth this into the detail of life in those days, then Luke is the man to read. His distinctive focus is on the poor, those that are financially challenged and those that are socially marginalised. He has a really holistic view of the gospel, body, mind, heart and soul to the ends of the earth. He, he has a Pentecostal feel. Jesus comes to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he's also very focused on women and the role that women play. He has stories that the other gospels don't have. John is different again. No parables in John. But he gives us more information about the three years in a way that isn't clear in the others. It's as though John takes us up a mountain and says quietly, look, from here on a clear day, you can see forever. His overarching theme is, we behold the glory, the glory of the Father's Son. He is writing a new Genesis. He starts it the same way, in the beginning, just like Genesis 1. And what he's saying is the world's creator has come to redeem and remake his world again. In reading John, we are looking into the face of the living God. It is the most intimate of the Gospels. It, it, it 
it's a series of conversations mainly and signs it has a sense of poetry to it and it's a journey it's a journey into faith each conversation takes us into a deeper understanding of Jesus and the reality of who he is so four different portraits like from different angles and if we understand the context and what each writer is trying to do I think we will get a deeper richness and understanding as we read them I would encourage you read one through read it as the story we so often break it into bits we lose the flow Mark I reckon could be done in less than an hour the others a bit longer maybe do it in two sessions but read a gospel if you are wanting to understand more about Jesus and you're listening to all that we're saying and it doesn't quite make sense then I would say read one of the Gospels if you want something clear and active read Mark if you want to understand the background and link it in to God's full story read Matthew if you want to see the whole context in society and the impact the gospel has on every group read Luke and if you want to have an intimate discussion and journey of faith read John and as you do that you will see Jesus in a new way So to understand the stories, we just need to understand a little bit more about where they took place. So Palestine, as we call it, in those days was divided into three regions with different cultures and different atmospheres. In the north, where Jesus took place most of his ministry, is Galilee. It's a fertile, beautiful place, an enormous lake surrounded by mountains, hills. Uh, it, it, people there are fairly cultured and civilized, but it's looked down upon by the metropolitan elite in Jerusalem as being a bit backwards, but it would have been a very pleasant place to live. There were two big cities, Tiberias and Sepphoris. Interestingly, Jesus never mentions going to either. He spent his time in the towns, of which there were many. The leader, the, the, the ruler of that area was called Herod. He's the son of the Herod we meet right back at the birth of Jesus. And he's called Herod the Fox because he was quite cunning. And along with the Sadducees, who are the aristocracy, they would rule Galilee. And generally, Galilee was a settled uh, rural place with a quieter pace of life. Surrounding it to the east, north and west is an area called the, the Gentiles, the area of the Gentiles, which is a mixture of Jewish, Gentile, Syrian and Arab and it has a very different feel to Galilee and it's ruled by somebody different called Philip another one of Herod's sons as we see later it's a significant place for Jesus at one point in his ministry then thirdly in the south is the kingdom of Judah with the capital city of Jerusalem and Samaria Samaria is lying in between Judah and Galilee and of course Jews would never go through there they would always spend an extra couple of days when they walked every year back down to Jerusalem to avoid it because it was seen as a heathen place, a, a, a place that, that they really hated the people, to be honest, and disregarded them. And it's very interesting that Jesus once went through Samaria deliberately. In his last journey to Jerusalem, he is in a hurry and he cuts straight through Samaria. But in doing so, he demonstrates that the gospel breaks down all racial barriers what he did was radical in that journey so what about Jerusalem well Jerusalem is the center politically socially economically religiously of the whole nation it is ruled by the Romans directly 
and they put in charge at that point a man we know of as Pontius Pilate who was a fairly cruel brutal ruler and as a result Jerusalem was very tense on one side you had Pilate and the Romans screwing it down to keep control on the other side you had the zealots that group of people who were believing for freedom and, and, and that the Messiah would come and liberate the country. And you had poor Caiaphas, the high priest, right in the middle of this, trying to keep the lid on it. Which is why when he comes to Jesus' trial and he says it's expedient that one man might die for the sake of the people, he was just trying to keep things under control. He didn't realise prophetically he was saying something so much greater. So that is Jerusalem in the south. Now we come to the story, the story of how God became man and lived on earth for 33 years. And I think for me always the most striking thing is the first 30 of those years we know almost nothing about. We can piece together from the story a few things. We know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know he and Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt and he was a refugee there for a few years. He experienced life as a young child, as rejection, as a refugee. They then moved back to Nazareth where he, Jesus followed his father into the family business as a builder, carpenter, working in stone, wood and metal. He had, we know, at least seven siblings. He was at least on a family of seven. He had four brothers and at least two sisters. But apart from that, we know nothing. And this is a remarkable thing, that Jesus lived for 30 years, a life so ordinary, so normal, that when he began ministering to the people who knew him best, they couldn't believe he was anything more than the local builder. He, he did no healings in those 30 years. Presumably his father, Joseph, died, uh, maybe at a relatively young age, looking at the numbers, but he didn't heal him. He did no miracles. He did no teaching for 30 years. I suppose if you asked somebody, they would have said, well, he's the nice guy next door. He's always helpful. We can't quite understand why at age 30 he's not married, but he's a nice guy and a good builder. That's all they would have said. I find that remarkable. Why? Perhaps humanly, it was because he was waiting for James, his brother who was quite a bit younger to wait till he could take on the business but I think it's also a very powerful statement about the timing and patience of God that God on earth was prepared for all those years to live a normal human life partly to hallow it to us to show that normal human living matters but also to show the patience and timing of God is not our timing so then he moves into his ministry and that has four distinct phases. And if we know what phase it's in, it helps us understand what he's saying and what is going on. The first phase is while he's still based in Nazareth, probably lasts around a year. And we know most of this from the Gospel of John. He gathers his disciples, a really motley crew. They go from Nathaniel, who seems quite intellectual, to some fairly crude fishermen like Peter and John. They go from uh, Simon a Zealot, someone who's a resistance fighter for the freedom of Israel, to Matthew, a tax collector, who's a collaborator with the ruling powers. How he pulled that group together, I don't know. But he starts his ministry with just a lovely miracle of such 
ordinariness of life and celebration, turning water into wine at a wedding. There's such a sense of joy around that unreligious, down-to-earth start to his ministry. And all of this year has a feel of a relaxed, joyful, happy time ministering in the towns and villages, healing people, teaching in the synagogues. And Jesus at this point is teaching primarily about the kingdom of God. He doesn't talk about himself. He's talking about the kingdom of God coming. He doesn't want people to know that he is the Messiah at this point, as you find. He often tells the demons not to say, because he knows he needs to change people's view of what the Messiah was going to do. He knows he needs to change their view from the Messiah being the conquering king who is going to elevate Israel as a nation to the Messiah being the suffering servant of Isaiah, who would liberate people far more fundamentally and individually from the sin and death that would be imprisoning them. It's an upside-down kingdom. There are wonderful stories of mercy and compassion during this time. A great insight into the heart of Jesus. Mark 1 verse 40, he comes to heal a leper. Um, and he doesn't just say, you're healed. He reaches out and touches him. We all know that gesture, Princess Diana, of touching that person with AIDS and how it changed things. This is an even more fundamental risky touching of someone with leper, leprosy. To heal him, but to affirm him and to call him back into society. The mercy and compassion of Jesus shines through in these early years. And this ends, this phase ends with a dramatic encounter at the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter four, where Jesus for the first time starts to declare who he is by that passage from Isaiah and declaring this has now happened. And it almost results in his death. Incredible dramatic story, ending up being taken to a hill and turning around and walking through the crowd. So that takes us then to the second phase of his ministry, where he moves to Capernaum. It's a day's walk away on the lakeside. There's a feel here of a bit of a break with his family. The only time his family try and come, they want to try and collect him back. And we hear no record of them in the rest of his ministry. For another probably year and a half, he moves around Galilee, healing the sick, freeing the demonized, preaching the kingdom to larger and larger crowds. He teaches mainly in parables, stories from everyday life, which amuse people, but always provoke them as well. I think we lose much of the impact of these stories. We think they are mainly ethical teaching, how to live or illustrations for children's work, but they are far more profound than that. In fact, they are, represent some of the most proud theological teaching in the whole of the Bible, not surprisingly when they're given by Jesus. In the West, we're used to a very logical, conceptual idea of thinking about God, which can become a problem because the more intelligent the theologian, the more complicated things seem to become. And I don't know about you, but I find I get lost sometimes as these ideas get more and more complicated. Jesus taught instead mainly in metaphors. That is stories with a deeper meaning. They're not illustrations. They don't explain meaning in another way. They create meaning. Let me try and explain this with a modern example. Many of us will have seen the musical Les Miserables or the film. Some of us might even have read the book. Les Mis is a parable about law and grace. Its power is that we enter the story. 
We get caught up in the characters of Jean Valjean and Inspector Javert. We feel their feelings and we feel for them. We experience the power of grace and the terrible hold of legalism in a way that just reading about it wouldn't do. This is exactly what happened to Jesus' listeners when he talked them in parables. So let's look for a moment at the story that Anna read from Luke chapter 6. This is the classic Sunday school story. It even has a song with actions ending with a crash. But how would the listeners have heard it? Well, firstly, they would know that building a house was a huge endeavour in those days. It wasn't like grand designs where you can call lots of people in and have big diggers and ready-made bricks. It was hard slog. It was perilous. It was exhausting with many struggles. Secondly, they would know you only build in summer. No point trying to build in winter with the rain and everything else. And in summer, the earth is hard. It all looks perfectly hard and solid, as though it would be a perfect foundation. It's also very hard work to dig through if you do want to dig down. Thirdly, they knew their Old Testament. And as Jesus started talking, some of them will be thinking about Isaiah 28 verses 14 to 16. I haven't got time to read it. Look it up. But it talks there about foundations, about buildings, and about storms. Because in that day, Isaiah was prophesying that a storm was coming to Israel that was going to destroy many things that weren't built on God's foundation. So as they started to recognize this, they must have realized Jesus wasn't talking about a house, really. He was talking about a life, about their life. And they were very well aware about storms, not just physical ones, but they knew there was a storm coming. They knew there would be sooner or later a blow up between the Zealots and the Romans. They knew at some point everything was going to be broken apart, as it was 40 years later. So I would imagine there would be a sort of growing hush as people listened. The chatter would be stopping as people started to recognise he's talking about our life as it started to sink in and storms are coming. Fourthly, how far do you dig down to get to the foundation? Well, you dig down to the rock. In some places, that's six inches deep. In some places, that's six feet. There's no point just digging down a couple of inches for a bit of show and laying a few bricks. You've got to dig down to the rock, and they would have known that. So two houses are being built. One of them's large, attractive, nice finishing touches, lovely cladding. The other is smaller less well finished, not anything like so impressive because the builder has spent much more time and money on digging foundations. And then that's how life goes on. One house in every respect, much more impressive. One life being more successful in terms of careers, in terms of wealth and possessions, achieving more in terms of family, even in terms of church and ministry. One life looking far more impressive than the other until the storm came and the storm does come it comes to both the righteous and the unrighteous the wise and the foolish both experience a storm and it's rough but for one the house and their life stands for the other the thing becomes a complete ruin just like those pictures we've seen of when floods come down through villages and carry the whole house away a frightening thing and here's the punchline of the parable. You see, the foundation isn't just knowing Jesus. The foundation isn't just knowing what he said. 
The foundation isn't just reading and studying our Bible. The foundation is obedience. Digging a foundation is about obeying what Jesus says. That daily obedience of digging down through all our motivations, our interests, what's stirring us, what matters to us in life, to the bedrock of what does Jesus say and obeying it. Much of the work of building a resilient life is invisible. So this phase ends with Jesus sending out his disciples, proclaiming the kingdom, and his ministry dramatically increases and so does the opposition. The climax is the feeding of the 5,000. And at the end, it's clear people still do not understand what sort of kingdom Jesus is talking about because they want to make him king. This must have been a bitter blow. All his work in preaching and teaching, when he was seeking to call the people of Israel, his people, God's chosen people, to understand what he was doing, had yielded very little apparent fruit. He knew he was going to go to the cross and die, but he wanted as many as possible to understand the kingdom of God in its reality. So the next six months, he's on the move. He's on the run to a degree, because of Herod's spies, because of the Pharisees who are now committed to killing him, and also because he doesn't want to be stirred up the people to try and make him king. So he moves to this area we've talked about around Galilee, Tyre and Sidon, this area ruled by Philip, where in that period he just he suddenly becomes much clearer about who he is. He teaches his disciples about who he is and what's going to happen. There's very little crowds. There's very little interaction with other people in this phase. And then finally we come to the fourth phase where he moves to Judah for the last six months of his life and visits Jerusalem a few times. He's going into the lion's den. This is the climax of his ministry. And even on the way, something remarkable happens. He passes through Jericho. And you can imagine all the, all, all the worthies of Jericho heard he was coming, lining up on the street saying, ah, welcome, come, have tea, have a meal, stay with us. And he walks right through. And he walks right through till he sees a man on a sycamore tree. And we know he walks right through because in those days, sycamore trees had to be planted at least 50 meters away from a town or village. And he spots in that tree Zacchaeus, a man who was very rich, but universally despised, hated, and a social outcast because he is a collaborator with the Romans. And more than that, he's fleecing everybody of their money. And he looks up at him and he says, I want to come to your house. Now the rest of the crowd must have been utterly offended. He walked past all of them. He wouldn't stay with them, but he's going to Zacchaeus's house. But that amazing example of grace transforms Zacchaeus's life. What's really interesting is it's only a few verses before that Jesus talks to the rich young ruler, who is obviously a much better person than Zacchaeus, who's done all the commandments, who asks what he should do, and Jesus says, give away your wealth and follow me, and the rich young ruler can't do it. But to Zacchaeus, a much worse person, he speaks and grace changes Zacchaeus's life and turns it around. I would love to talk about that final week in Jerusalem, but there isn't time. That's worthy of a whole talk all on its own. And we will be coming to that period soon as we come up to Easter. And I would encourage you to read that story particularly. It's about a third of each gospel as we get into that last week from Palm Sunday to Easter Day. This is the greatest story ever told. 
by a long, long way. <laughs> it's a story of amazing grace and wisdom and power. It's a story of betrayal. It, it's dramatic. And the character at the middle of it, Jesus, is utterly glorious. I would encourage you, read one of the Gospels. Read through the stories. Ask to see Jesus. Bring out the book. And of course, at the end of it, do what it says. God bless.